Pretend for a moment that you are the head of a nation and say that after many years of autocratic rule, you want to claim to have converted to democracy. You hold elections, you issue public relations statements that say your citizens now have the right to vote, and you sit back and reap the potential benefits. But then again, talk is cheap, right? How do you prove that you've done what you said you would do? Well, you invite international election observers to come and watch the entire election from beginning to end. And if you're actually embracing democracy, well, there'll be a great helpful benefit. But if you're merely faking it, you better have a plan to deceive them before they even set foot in the country. We'll talk about all of this and more on this episode of Mistaken Identity. I'm Mike Kaiser, and welcome to a new season of Mistaken Identity. We begin this, our fourth season, with a special focus on election security, voting systems, and their impact on democracy. We have a range of guests coming to explain the ins and outs of election observing, online voting, and the current state of election security, both in the United States and throughout the world. We're always fascinated by the intersection of identity and security in our normal lives, and the stakes are never higher than when it comes to self-determination. Today on Mistaken Identity, I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Susan Hyde. She's a professor of political science at the University of California in Berkeley. She studies international influences on domestic politics with a focus on the developing world. And she's an expert on international election observation, election fraud, and democracy promotion. Uh, she may be best well known for her 2011 book, The Pseudo-Democrats' Dilemma, why election observation became an international norm. Thank you for uh, joining us today, Dr. Hyde. Thank you very much for having me. So obviously, election security, given especially the United States in this kind of time frame, we are a week and a few days away from the U.S. election. And I wanted to talk about election security with you. And particularly, you have a long history in observing elections in various places, ranging from Pakistan to, I think, Nicaragua to a few others. And most people, I think, most of our listeners would say, oh, that's people going to a poll and watching things happen. But the process is actually much broader than that. Election observation has changed a lot over its history, but international election observation is something that many people assume is imposed on countries around the world. But in fact, it's it was initiated and continues to be something that requires the invitation of the host government. So international observers typically won't go unless they're invited to be there by the government. It gives them credentials, allows them to operate more freely, and gives them the necessary authorizations they need to do what we call a comprehensive or full-scale election observation mission. A full-scale 
state-of-the-art election observation mission today will typically observe all parts of the electoral process, including the campaign period, election day, as you mentioned, and then the post-election dispute resolution period, if there is one. It can involve a number of experts who are thematically focused on things like the legal framework for elections, on the media environment. Sometimes they will engage in what's called media monitoring, in which they assess the degree to which the media environment in the country is open to all parties and candidates and or biased in favor of one or, or more parties or candidates. They will sometimes do deployment of a long-term, of a set of long-term observers who are deployed throughout the country in the months leading up to election day, uh, often a delegation of short-term observers that usually focus on primarily election day activities and the few days on either side of elections. Those are the ones who we see pictures of going into polling stations with clipboards and trying to see what's happening. And then the post-election dispute resolution period that also often involves a lot of expert assessment of what's happening. The, the sum total of what they're trying to do is typically not to interfere in the process at all, but merely to be there as outsiders without a stake in the outcome who are primarily interested in evaluating the quality of the process relative to either that country's own international commitments that it's made in international organizations, that country's own laws, and sometimes recent elections in that country or countries that are similar in experiences. So there's a lot of metrics that they use. The free and fair term, a lot of people think that's what observers are there to do is issue an assessment of whether an election was free and fair. It's not really what happens anymore. A lot of the assessments are much more nuanced and they can call for things in the pre-election period that can be remedied. So they can point out that there's a problem that could be addressed in advance of an election. And that's something that in a few cases has been meaningful and has led to reforms of electoral procedures before elections that have helped enhance the quality of the process. One of the things that I've documented in some of my research is that they can reduce fraud. So by being there, they can reduce the amount of election fraud that is likely to be carried out on election day. A lot of other people have studied that since then and, and the evidence seems promising on that front. They can also displace election fraud and then they can potentially have some effect, although it's much more ambiguous on other types of problems associated with elections like election violence. That's fascinating. This seems like a stunningly difficult set of circumstances to experiment on. I know you've done parallels between multiple elections to see what percentage of incumbent vote was mm -hmm. obtained when there were observers. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating, as mm -hmm. you noted, I think before also that just the very act of having observers changes mm -hmm. behavior on mm -hmm. some level. And that, that's the next thing I wanted to ask you about. I think you've done previous work, obviously, especially in your 2011 book, talking about mm -hmm. how observation has become a norm over time. Mm -hmm. In part with that, I was stunned to, to read that in part because democracy as an idea, at least, maybe not a reality, but as an idea has been embraced by governments over time internationally. Could you mm -hmm. say more about that? Yeah, one of the trends that is very striking in the world in the 20th century that other people have highlighted, I'm not, this is not my research, but the, the work of other people is to sort of document how widespread the idea of de democracy became. And international election observation is tied to this broader global normative change. Martia Sen is someone I love to quote. He's a, a Nobel Prize winning economist who 
following his award of the Nobel Prize called the acceptance of democracy, not just as a set of institutions, but as a value world around the world as the most important development in the 20th century. That I think we're moving away from in a lot of ways, which we could also talk about. But at least in the post-World War II period, there was a pretty striking move in many countries, particularly in the West at first, but then in, in the 1990s, really globally, of many countries, sincerely or not, but if, many countries around the world expressing uh, preference for democracy in other countries, signing on to international agreements that committed their own institutions to becoming more democratic or being democratic, and also agreeing to a set of uh, consequences within those international organizations that they would willingly sign up for or enforce in their neighbors if violations of democracy like coups, military coups, were were to occur. It, and I, I think just this seed change, I think you noted in a science article from September of this year, in fact, if anyone's interested, mm -hmm. I'll provide links later on to read all this material. Yeah. So I want to be clear about something. So elections spread to nearly every country in the world. And there's just a small group of countries that did not hold elections at all for national office between 2000 and, and, and this year. And the Many of those elections allow for the possibility of multi-party competition on paper. In practice, <laughs> the opposition is not going to win in a lot of those countries. So I want to make clear, like, a lot of this is a facade, right? It's the adoption of multi-party institutions without necessarily a government that's willing to run for an election that they might actually lose. But I do think it's a little bit riskier for them to adopt this set of institutions. If it's, easy, it's easier to be certain that you can't lose if you don't even allow an opposition party to exist. That's fascinating. So the, the very act of having elections raises this, gives you the veneer of responsibility or democracy, but it raises mm -hmm. the specter that you might, it might turn out poorly for you. And we've seen this a number of times, most recently in Belarus, right? Nobody thinks Lukashenko is holding democratic elections. He hasn't for a very long time. But what elections do provide is this potential focal point for collective action. And sometimes that can be facilitated by international actors who are coming in and engaging in support for pro-democracy movements. But for the most part, it really has to come from citizens so that citizens are deciding that they've had enough with a particular leader. And if it's a, a true authoritarian regime, even if it has elections, it can be very difficult for them to do anything about that. It's fascinating to watch what's happening in Belarus. It's really horrible in many respects, but it's also yet another case of authoritarian elections leading to people power movement of some kind that is a lot riskier for authoritarian leaders than I think they're always think that, let me, let me try that again. I think that these elections are often things that authoritarian elites think they can control and they usually can for some period of time, but there's so many examples of them being surprised by citizen reactions to fraudulent elections. And, and ultimately sometimes those, those citizen movements work in bringing down authoritarian regimes and, and leading transitions to greater political liberalization. Obviously, the road is pretty rocky. It's not an easy process for any country around the world, but right. we see the pattern happen again and again. So it does seem to be like there's something kind of universal about it. It, it seems like there's a, a carrot and a stick almost mm -hmm. where there's incentive for them to invite these observers in and they mm -hmm. must 
it, unless they are actually truly embracing democracy, which it sounds like some of these more, as you call them, pseudo-democracies, I believe, but the way they operate is they feel they can skirt around whatever the observers are doing and still mm -hmm. manipulate the election to their advantage. Now, some of that's mm -hmm. obvious, like I think the Belarus case, for instance, but others, it seems like it's this tenuous balance that there is assuming that there are mm -hmm. flaws in observation. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's a parallel there between some of the other things in security. I think about privacy regulation or GDPR, it's a similar vibe because what you're doing on some level, it feels like is auditing what the claims are and the same way that organizations say, yes, we're protecting the privacy of our individuals. It's a, a, a fundamental right, a much of the right to self-determination. You're auditing that. And I find that that give and play fascinating, especially because it's establishment of international norms. Now, it, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to comment on that a little bit. One of the, the parallels between what you were talking about with privacy regulation and whatnot, it, it, it has a strong parallel to elections in some way, which is that that the perception can be just as important as reality in figuring out what the best strategy is for uh, a variety of things. But in elections, you can have a perfectly run election, but if people don't believe that it's a perfectly run election, that can have really pernicious consequences in a society. And so a lot of what we think about with, with elections around the world, with the promotion of democracy, with election monitoring, with election administration globally, comparatively, there are a lot of systems that are completely functional, right? They do the job of allowing votes to be cast and allowing those votes to be tabulated. But if people don't trust those systems, it's sometimes the wrong system. And so the public confidence in the process is a really important variable for people focused on elections to consider. I obviously don't know the world of, of privacy regulation and the world in which you work very well, but it sounds like there might be some parallels on that dimension, right? That the perception is really important and it may or may not correlate with the reality. Oh, for sure. And that's also why I tell uh, security companies that they need protection or software or anybody really needs protection from a software security point of view but they also yeah. need a really good PR department because yeah. it's that outward portrayal, right? And the same yeah. thing with the current yeah. election in the US, right? Malicious actors yeah. seem to be yeah. acting to try and discredit or make people not trust uh, the system right. itself. And then things start to fall apart. And I think you've noticed noted that again in that 2020 article, a review of other people's research, but still it's a very helpful mm -hmm. summary of a backsliding a little bit mm -hmm. off of that democratic norm. Do you think mm -hmm. that would result in a, a slight backstep for international observing as a consequence as well? Yeah, it could. So democratic backsliding is a really interesting concept. And one of the things that I talked to the editor that I worked with at Science quite a bit in thinking about what I might do for this piece this, which is a review essay, to be clear, not uh, a piece of original research, but it are supposed to provide a, a unique take on the, on the sure. literature, which can be deceptively hard in 4,000 words. But it, it was a, the, the article almost was about something related to this, which is just that it can be really hard to tell whether what we're seeing about democratic backsliding in, around the world is actual backsliding or just a lot of leaders who have been faking it up until this point and adopting these superficial forms of democratic institutions, dropping the act. And so what's the difference between, what are, what's the core difference between 
uh, a government that has been playing by somewhat democratic rules without any real intention of, of becoming fully democratic in the short term and a country that is experiencing democratic backsliding. Now, there's clear cases of democratic backsliding in longstanding democracies, but that's not quite what I want to, wanted to focus on. I'm interested in these middling cases of countries that never really achieved what we call consolidated democracy, never got to that point, and are now just acting a lot more like blatant authoritarian regimes, right? So the blatant violence against citizens, the, the murder, more obvious murder and disappearance of journalists, greater blatant human rights abuses, all of these things can add up to what I think could have been something that they were just concealing a little bit better in the 1990s and 2000s and, and a little bit more recently as well. But we have been seeing a turn away from international support for democracy, not just in the last four years, but really since the U.S. initiated war on terror. So that, because it was privileging security and state security over individual rights, the U.S. set up a lot of partnerships around the world in which it was encouraging governments to go after partisan groups that were potentially affiliated with the wrong people and supporting their violation of individual rights in the pursuit of this broader goal of anti-terrorist policies. And that happened gradually. It didn't happen everywhere. It happened in some really specific cases. But I think it did contribute to a backing away of U.S. support for democracy. And we're seeing some of that from European countries as well and some other countries around the world that used to be more prominent defenders of, of democracy. There's just a little bit less enthusiasm for it. So, yes, I think ultimately it will. It has already been affecting election observation and the willingness of countries to send international observers and the willingness of international organizations to uh, support these bigger, find funding for and support these bigger missions. But I think that more broadly, we could see a number of other things. It's not out of the question that a number of these countries that have been holding elections for the last 30 or 40 years will just stop holding elections entirely. We haven't seen that yet, but some countries have postponed elections because of the pandemic. It's a convenient excuse. We'll see if they actually have them, and we'll see if any of these other governments are just going to say, you know what, we've had enough with this experiment with introducing elections, and we're not going to bother anymore. It's They just stopped mowing the lawn, stopped subscribing to the HOA and keeping up appearances. Yeah. You had a chart from 2008, your work with the Brookings Institute, that I found really helpful oh. as well. <laughs> Which, which it had this list of, it speaks a little bit to what you're talking about, of intentional corrupting of elections and mm -hmm. le maybe less intentional or more circumstantial. And it sounds yeah. like more countries are, are not paying as much attention to that list maybe because they don't have the mm -hmm. impetus that they once did because the United yeah. States is a little bit backed away from that being a more spread moral value maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to be clear, there's a lot of disagreement within U.S. institutions right now about what the foreign policy is and should be, and there are definitely still a number of U.S.-supported actors who are out there promoting democracy and working on these things. But we've also just seen a rise. One of my Ph.D. students, Suparna Chandri, has been working on attacks, both administrative but also violent attacks on NGOs around the world, and it's just become much more likely that governments are willing to go after 
alternative voices in their political system. And that includes democracy promotion organizations. So the landscape is more difficult in, in a lot of respects. I think a lot of governments around the world are feeling more emboldened to pursue security interests and pr to prioritize that to a greater degree than they were previously over individual rights, respect for human rights, respect for civil rights and political rights. And all of those things are really interesting trends. So I am interested in this game of cat and mouse, and I've tried to document that previously. But I do think when global support for democracy is high, it's again something that we've seen fluctuate over the years. You have more countries, not all countries, but more countries that are willing to try to manipulate the elections in a strategic fashion, which I think they are more constrained when they're doing that. They're less able to just change the vote totals on election day to the outcome that they wanted. <laughs> they actually have to, in some ways, go through the, 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 the process and go through the machinations of holding an election, allowing multi-party competition, allowing people to run against them, not just throw all of their political opponents in jail. We know how dictatorships behave. We've had a lot of them historically, and, and they're pretty consistent in their ability to deter challenges to their continued hold on power. But if no one is constraining them at the international level, it's left entirely to their own citizens. And it was always mostly the work of citizens that matters in democratization. To say that it's all caused by international actors is just uh, wrong or a misinterpretation of what I, I feel like sometimes I get misinterpreted as, as saying that because I am trying to emphasize the international dimension a little bit more, that it's also playing a role. But if you take away international support for democracy, what you have left is as a government, which often has a lot more ability to use force <laughs> against citizens who have a hard time solving their own collective action problems and are often not armed in any way and have problems challenging these authoritarian governments without a lot of bloodshed. And so I just think that there's a lot of, if you're, there, I don't know if you've seen this book. This is my new favorite book. I'm teaching it. It's Adam Jorsky, Why Bother with Elections. Ooh, no, but I'm it's written it for a popular audience. It's not intended for an academic audience, but it, it has a lot of lowering of the expectations that we might have for democracy to solve all of a country's problems and is basically saying that the central virtue of democracy is that it allows for the nonviolent resolution of societal disputes. And asking a lot more from that is maybe misguided, right? It has other positive outcomes in many countries around the world, but that's really the reason to prefer it over other forms of government. And that's something that we keep coming back to. Especially when you're dealing with a country like the United States, which has this mythos built up and the idealism that is lacking maybe in, in other parts of the world yeah. also when it comes to elections okay. and ideals. Speaking of the U.S., because we're a week <laughs> away, one of the questions I think people are going to be asking is, if the U.S. itself invites election observers in, mm -hmm. I think we do. Could you? Yeah, we've we've had so the the United States is a member of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and as a condition of membership, and along with a, a set of legal obligations that all OSCE states have signed on to, the U.S. has committed to inviting international observers to its elections. Initially, in the early days, this wasn't enforced, but after the 2000 elections in the United States, which many of us can remember were not the smoothest in U.S. history, but in part because they were so close that the vote outcome was very closely tied in terms of the electoral votes. And it, it 
led Russia, along with a number of other Russian-affiliated countries within the OSCE region. Russia is also a member of the OSCE and has been experiencing election observation from the OSCE as well, led them to start this drumbeat of hypocrisy, right, that the U.S. needed to invite international observers, as did the rest of European members in the OSCE. And so from that point on, we saw a lot more election observation in the European countries and in the U.S. So we've had international observers in the U.S. since 2002. So they came for the midterm elections after that. They have access problems because of the U.S. decentralized election and administration process. And in this election, they sent a pre-election needs assessment mission, determined that they wanted to have 100 long-term observers and 400 short-term observers. And then because of the U.S.'s handling of the pandemic, we're basically unable to recruit anyone, enough volunteers who are willing to come over here and be around other people in the United States with the way that the, the virus is still being transmitted in, in around the country. And so we have a much small, they, they cut down their delegation, they pulled back, not because they wanted to, but because they had to what they call a, a limited election observation mission. And so they're here, they're, they're, they have a lot of experts who are doing their normal central office analysis. And then they have some people who are fanning out, not just from the OSCE, but from the, the there's a parliamentary assembly that also sends politicians who are willing to do this. And so they're here, they're doing it. The OAS, uh, I think, signaled that some interest in willing, the Organization of American States of, of coming, didn't get an invitation from the US State Department this election. Yes, we can look to their report, but they were in many ways really not able to do the same job that they normally would have or that they would be doing if if it were not for the pandemic. But they have been issuing some statements. Those statements are available if people are interested in looking at them, and they will be issuing a post-election statement as well with appropriate caveats about their mission size and whatnot. It's fascinating, I think, that it's almost like it's come full circle in a way that the United States might really benefit from an outside mm -hmm. perspective to say, yes, irregularities that we could see were present or not present, mm -hmm. or this seems level. It's also fascinating that with a federalism model, I think states have to give them permission to come in. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes even county election officials who have to give permission for them to go in polling stations. So every country where I've been an international observer, I'm given a credential by the national government like an ID badge that gives me authorization to go into polling stations, other places that are election related. And those are not respected here by election administrators and polling station workers in all states. They are in many states, just there's um, some problem areas where they basically have been refused access. And so they can't observe. Okay. Wow. That's more complicated than I thought. I, it is important <laughs> to say, I think, and I'd like you to weigh on this also, it's not a blanketing of every election place, every precinct, every polling place, every ballot. I, mean, I think our listeners may get the wrong idea. They need to think of it, I would argue, they need to think of it more like statistical polling, like a 538 kind of thing where they take a random sample and build the picture off that. Is that kind of how it's done? Yeah, that's one of the things I've worked with international observation groups on is the development of protocols for randomizing observers during the during election day, because in the early days, they weren't doing that for the most part, or if they were doing, it wasn't super um, deliberate. 
And there's a lot of reasons why they wouldn't want to do that. So some parts of countries are, as we talked before, in, inaccessible, right? You don't want to, or, or sometimes your mission size means you need to do some sort of like cluster randomized sampling. And you just don't claim that your election day observations represent the entire country, but you're clear about what they should be representative of. And there's also something akin to hotspot policing or something like that, where they anticipate areas that are going to be problematic and want to assign more resources to those areas. They understand that their observations are going to be biased by going to places that are more problematic, but they sometimes think that it that problem is outweighed by a desire to try to deter problems in areas where more problems are expected but it does it does bias observations in some ways the other thing that is often a constraint is the security situation so when i was an election observer both in afghanistan and pakistan we had really um, severe constraints on where we could go and also wanted to be not broadcasting where we were going to go and so it was an interesting experience in thinking about how what we were able to see might be different than areas of the country, especially in Afghanistan, that we weren't able to visit and we weren't able to send any observers to. Yeah, but in, a, in an ideal situation, they basically do some kind of geographic clustering and then randomize within those geographic clusters. But that's it's not as widespread, I'll be honest, as I would like it to be. <laughs> I want more. Not all of the missions are doing that. It's, it's taken a while for it to take off. And there, it's becoming more common, but it's also, it's a little bit harder to do than, than we would do with polling, for example, because you have a group of two people who's trying to get um, to as many places as possible on election day while also going to a representative sample of places. And so it just, there's some human behavior involved that, that makes it a little bit more challenging than it sounds. <laughs> well, that, it sounds fascinating at the same time, because not only do you need to have an idealized process, but you have to meld that with what the situation is on the ground for the people and the yeah. government and even the geography. You think of Afghanistan and getting places between locations would possibly... Or even, even Nicaragua and Liberia, other places I've observed, like Nicaragua has some places that there's polling stations. I looked at them on the map. I was do we were doing randomization on that mission and I was working I was that was one of the things I was doing with that mission. And some of the polling stations require you to take a boat and then some kind of uh, four-legged animal and then walk quite a ways. And that would just take an entire day to get there. And so we just had to block off certain places. And, and Liberia similarly has a lot of places that are super accessible, but a whole long list of places that just take a very long time to get to using any means of transportation at your disposal. Bringing in the vote by llama. That type of thing. I think I saw. I think I saw a slide of yours where people were carrying ballot boxes for some mm -hmm. distance to yeah. bring in the centralized vote or something. I have a picture that I show in some slides that I cut out of a newspaper from when I was an observer in Indonesia, because in Indonesia some of the ballot boxes had to be walked in on foot for three weeks <laughs> in some remote regions wow. of Papua. These are really, but they, they did it, right? They managed to administer elections with ballot materials being distributed, at least for the elections that I was there for, to very remote corners of a country that does that has lots of remote villages in which people do not have a lot of contact with the outside world, but they still managed to get them their ballot material. So to dive down a little deeper into one concept, mm -hmm. parallel mm -hmm. vote tabulation. Could you talk about that and the difference between that and 
exit polling because even though you called it out, it's, that's what's going to be in people's head as soon as they hear vote type. Are they, what's, how does those, how are those two things look different? Yeah. So a parallel vote tabulation involves, again, nothing that I created, just something that I've learned about yeah. in, in my study of this it was initiated in the mid 1980s. I believe the really first, the first really high profile case was in the Philippines in, in the 86 election. And exit polls are problematic because they're self-reported, right? They can be very accurate, but it can be a little bit difficult to know whether what voters are saying when they leave a polling station in terms of their vote is accurate. And the times when it's inaccurate are often times in which people are worried about intimidation, they're worried about retaliation, they're worried about some other consequence that can be related to problems with elections. And so that's what makes parallel vote tabulation sometimes problematic. What parallel vote tabulations do, sorry, that makes exit polls somewhat problematic. What parallel vote tabulation does, and they can be used at the same time, there's nothing that means that you can't do both, is a random sample of people who sit at the same polling station from the, the moment it opens until the results are tabulated at the end of the night or in the middle of the night or early in the wee hours or the next morning. They don't leave. They observe every part of the process in that polling station and they're charged with calling in the official vote or faxing in or transmitting. Now, the old days, it was all fax, right. I think, yes. and telephone, right? There's ways of transmitting this information, but it's from a random sample of whatever the relevant population is. So for parliamentary seats, it's a lot more complicated, a lot more labor intensive than it is for a national office. But they call in the election results from their polling station. It's a very reliable indicator within a margin of error of the actual election results. And in some cases has been used to demonstrate election manipulation on the part of the government. An exit poll, again, it's just they can be very informative. They often align well with election outcomes, but in some contexts, they're not right. right. <laughs> and those contexts are really important types of contexts. They can be contexts in which the government is manipulating the election and the people are afraid to reveal their vote choice. That's fascinating. So the, when it's if parallel vote tabulation, are they using the actual ballots and the actual numbers and taking a random sample? There are people who are allowed to sit in, they're often carried out by uh, nonpartisan civic observer organizations mm -hmm. who are credentialed to sit inside the polling station and watch voting for the entire day. And so they don't have the their own copy of the results, but they are standing there while the results are counted, okay. the results are tabulated, and they make their own copy of the results. They can now take a picture on it, of it with a smartphone, but in the olden days, they would just hand write their own form. Of, so as, of, as they're of, counting, of, they hear the number or they, they see the, the part of the discussion and they have a independent writing down of... They keep their own tabulation of the votes as they're counted and then they, then they go forward with that. Obviously harder with certain types of electoral, election systems, but this is a technique that was developed around paper balloting and voting in person on election day. Which is a great transition to my <laughs> almost last question, probably. With the wave that I think is coming, and many people think are coming, and feel free to argue back with the premise itself, that voting is going to become digitized like the rest of our life. Mm -hmm. As I tell people, mm -hmm. this is where I've sat for the last six months in front of this portrait. Does that make the job of election security, and in particular, observing elections easier, harder, or neither? If if people never leave their homes to vote, I think it makes election observation harder. 
election security, it really goes back to the conversation we started with, or was very much earlier on in our conversation about this difference between the perception of election quality and the reality of election quality. So the electronic voting has been around for a while. I don't know when Estonia adopted it, but it's, it's not a completely new thing. I've periodically been getting people send me papers about blockchain technology and, and voting and I can't say that I can that I know enough about it to really comment on any of the security features associated with the varying technologies that can be used in securing securing voting. But the Carter Center has done some pioneering work in thinking about how you observe electronic voting. And I mentioned earlier that election monitoring missions have a lot of expert experts on the staff and that they are in many ways more important than the short-term observers, the people like me who wander around on election day and fill out forms and just watch what's happening. But what they've basically recommended is a series of standards for, as I recall, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, so no worries, no worries. <laughs> don't, if I'm wrong, I, may, I might be wrong, but what I recall is that they've recommended basically for voting that takes place electronically, a set of experts that should be on any election observation team that is able to, and, and then some standards for government transparency on how they are securing the election and how they are running the election, including the ability to audit the, the code, so to speak, and all of the things that feed into that in order to have an independent set of eyes on a lot of things. Now, clearly there's a lot of problems with that. It's very hard to know what really is used on election day for people who are coming in from the outside. It's hard to know if what you're looking at is what's the thing that's really being utilized even on that day. Although I think there's ways to, to get around many of those problems. But what is going to be a perpetual problem is getting people to trust the process. Because unlike a lot of areas of technology, elections are something that matter to everyone in a country, regardless of their level of education. And people who don't even have a debit card and use an ATM are going to be voting. This is something that just covers all ranges of, of people. And it to me, it matters that they're able to trust a system. And that's the problem that I've thought a lot about and I don't have any good answers to, but I would welcome other people convincing me about them. Because it's not just that you can convince some people that a system is trustworthy. You have to convince a lot of people with really different backgrounds and familiarity with technology that a system is one that they can trust. And it's just very easy to discredit these sorts of systems because you have to be an expert. I can't, I'm an expert in elections and I can't even understand if they, if a lot of these things are, are legit or not. And I wouldn't know it by watching someone vote electronically if it was actually being cast, but I can watch somebody vote on election day, hang around for the count, watch the ballots being counted. And I know basically that things happen. So the, the transparency is something they're working on. It's going to have to be experts who are doing that assessment. It cannot be people like me. And I, I think that the citizen confidence is probably the most difficult part of this. And I don't, I just don't know how to, I, I, people trust banks, online banking. My mom still doesn't. <laughs> she has a, she's a large mattress stuffed full of cash at home. The, you're right. She doesn't trust online banking. She trusts going. To oh, her okay. Bank. I was going to say that sounds yeah. very old school. Yeah. I think it's a cultural moment, right? Just as people got more used to doing digital transactions online and staying home and staring into a camera for hours on end over the past couple of six months. Uh, you, I think it's a, a cultural transition for all of us. And that's what that's why I like talking about 
observation of elections with you. Thank you for your time, because it seems like it's what it boil boils down to is establishing trust. And I love the fact that you can't, you don't actually intervene as an observer. You are just, you are there to say, yes, they're trying and they're doing their best and they're not doing anything that's obviously malicious or whatever else. And that mm -hmm. gives this element of trust to the overall process. So mm -hmm. maybe I take back my electronic voting question then because it's more end-to-end -end rather than, you know, the one specific voting incident, but. Yeah. The other part of it is that with electronic voting, a lot of people who have studied this and worked on this do recommend some kind of backup system and some sort of voter documentation system. And those, if we're just talking about people trying to stay inside their houses and do, can be a little complicated. Again, if you're talking about a system that has to reach every voting eligible human in an entire large country, exactly. which is just, it's broader even than the banking population. That's, that's my standard of comparison. So. And you're right about it being universal. We tend to, in the States, me sitting in Austin, Texas with a high-speed mm. broadband connection, there's, there's so many levels of assumption that I'm baking into my thought process that yeah. it, it's, it's gonna be different for everybody, but. Yeah. Yeah, but I think for, for a lot of people, it could be a really good option. It would certainly make things more convenient. Well, and as you say, there are nations that have gone before. Estonia, mm -hmm. other national identity programs that bake in these citizen societal rights. So it's Which that might be the biggest barrier in the United States is that f f Americans tend to be super resistant to a national identity card. And it, it's historic. It seems really uh, like a strong preference. So. That may be one of the things that makes it. <laughs> again, again, the cultural aspects just just fascinate me. You're right. Absolutely. The collectivization of a society and how it cares for its citizens and protects those rights translates mm -hmm. into things. Mm -hmm. But thank you, Dr. Susan Hyde, for your time today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you again for coming on Mistaken Identity. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure. Thank you.